to More Real, a podcast about real people for real people. I wanted to create a space where I share my true feelings and those of my guests about what it's like to live in today's world. The challenges we face and how we deal with them, or don't. What about all that stuff that's just not said but should be? You know, the conversations that we really want to have but don't. What do we really think and feel? What about our regrets, dreams that we have and the stuff we should be doing but we don't? Each week, I'll be here talking to real people about real life. This is a very honest look at life, and hopefully, by listening, it will help you to have a better understanding of yours. In today's episode, I'm talking to a friend of mine, Ryan, about being a man, an expat, parenting, and conforming. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Thanks, and enjoy the show. We're in a men's group. What's the value of a men's group? Why'd you go? Well, I think you know one of the many good things about being in a men's group is the opportunity to gather together with um, other men in more of a conscious sort of context. So you're not only there connecting and sharing your story, but you're actually conscious of the way you are as a man and how you interact as a man and how you connect as a man you're practicing to be in a role that's a little bit more authentic hopefully than your normal day-to-day life and it's a bit more conscious and you're reflecting on how you're coming across making yourself vulnerable which there isn't always the right context in your normal day-to-day life to do that and you're going on a bit of a journey with this group who you're meeting with on a regular basis sharing over time quite a deep part of yourself and you know what's going on for you you can really use in whatever way you know you want to or you know I could turn up one night and feel like I really just need to unburden myself with what's going on on another occasion it the value might be just in hearing what's happening for other people mm-hmm. in the group so those are just some of the, the positive things that I've got from it and do you think as as you're talking I'm going it's different for me because I, I don't know I think I'm someone who's naturally very comfortable with being vulnerable and talking to people you mentioned about being vulnerable in a group and sometimes it's not as easy to be vulnerable outside of the men's group. Have there been times where you've consciously or not been aware of the fact that, you know what, oh yeah, I'm, I've just said something to someone that I wouldn't have done that in the past, but because I'm used to being in a, in a, in a group where it is very easy to talk about stuff that, you know, I'm very comfortable that you do that more or not? I'm not sure. I mean, I think the thing with vulnerability is that there needs to be the correct context for it. Like, you know, I, um, over the last few days, have spent quite a bit of time with my dog going to the park. And it's interesting observing animal behavior because, you know, we're animals too. And if you, you know, you'll see the way dogs interact in, in their social environment. And a dog won't necessarily just go and make itself vulnerable to any dog because. Mm that may come across as odd to other dogs. So it's like they sense each other out and sense, you know, is this appropriate? Is this a, 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 you know, another being that I want to make myself vulnerable to? Are they going to respond in the correct way? Um, Am I going to get a positive outcome? So if there's like another dog which looks very threatening or something like that, or um, disinterested or, you know, it's interesting when you really sort of look at animals and the way they interact. So I think 
it's very much about you know choosing the right context mm. like even today i had a great conversation with a, a guy at the park while our dogs were playing and he really started telling me his his life story and his history with addiction and unemployment and and um, some of the tough times he's gone through and some of the you know good and because he made himself vulnerable with me it made me more inclined to sort of do the same so uh, yeah, i'm not sure if it's made me do that more or less i mean the, on, the, on the plus side it's a, a great feeling when you get it right and you share yourself and, and make yourself vulnerable and people respond really well to it and they share more with you and you feel that deeper sense of connection and then there's other times mm. where people may use that against you you know it, they may see your vulnerability as a weakness or you may you know make yourself vulnerable with you may choose the context like incorrectly or the person you know incorrectly so um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, you know, vulnerability. Like, I, I think it's, it's about timing and, and choice. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. And the thing is, I was going to say to you, when you were with that guy in the park, how did you, did he just randomly start telling you stuff about himself and, and or did, how did it come up? It's like the layers of an onion, you know, like, okay. I think that people in a conversation give you clues they like when I studied documentary making we were studying interviewing that was what my teacher taught me that when you have a conversation with people people really want to be known they want to be understood and they want to share themselves with you but at the same time there's sort of a little bit of fear and just often people want you know reassurance so they may just sort of drop a little hint they'll just mention something and then if I pick up on it and say, oh, that's interesting what you mentioned there. Inviting them and giving them permission to go a little bit deeper. And then I may respond by sharing something about myself. And then, you know, I go a little bit deeper and there's that kind of consensual process. And then you said before, so have you done that and it's gone wrong? Like where you've gone, you thought you've seen, heard something in a conversation, you've said something about yourself, and then the other person hasn't responded in the way you thought at all. And you were like, oh... Has that happened? Obviously it has, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I, um, it, it, it might be something where people have judgments about something and then I mention something and then they'll put me in a box, you know, whether it's about, like I grew up in South Africa, so people might have all sorts of judgments or assumptions about what that means to be a white person growing up in South Africa, or I'm Jewish, so what does, mm. there, there may be a whole other um bunch of assumptions with that or, or sometimes I'll mention to someone that I do cycling you know and then they'll go oh you're not one of those guys who wear lycra and ride on beach road are you? <laughs> and there's it then is completely irrelevant you know what my experience is I'm you know in that box and so there's times like that where if they do have a lot of those judgments and I sort of think oh gee I sort of wish that I didn't share this in a way because I'm now being misunderstood and and judged yeah, yeah yeah there's nothing worse i think than that and i always find it very easy to to be with someone who just there's no, you get no sense at all that they're judging you they're just just being very honest and open with you and i think that's a very natural way to to to, to communicate so i think that's um that's really important it's uh, it's a hard one with judgments because I, I think you know if we if you look at the way humans have evolved like we've survive partly because of our ability to judge you know like if you go back you know i don't know tens of thousands of years yeah. where we have needed to make snap decisions about our surroundings if other 
humans might be a threat or the environment might mm. be a threat or you know whatever it might be and we've needed to read our situation purely from a survival point of view so it's sort of natural to have these judgments and you know going back to something like a men's group you know that's where it's useful to because it's a process of being conscious of how you're interacting noticing the judgments that are coming up for you mm. and then noticing how you respond if you can become really conscious of that moment between this unconscious thought and then your reaction, then that's like really powerful because then you can actually mediate and you can you can notice the judgment and you can either choose to stay with it or let it go. So. Yes, yeah, that's very true. And it's a good to what you mentioned before about being so from stereotypes and people have, and I think that's fascinating that, that people have these, pre including myself, and I've often talked about being in a men's group where one of the things I, I, I've learned, I can't remember if I mentioned it in the men's group, perhaps I have, is... I think I've, I've written it down somewhere, is that the men's groups taught me, don't judge a book by its cover. Whatever you think is going on about, you've got no idea what's going on in someone's life at all. Because you, you can't, unless, as you said, you're vulnerable and people expose them, themselves to you. How, how do you, I'm just interested in the whole kind of like, where people have these preconceived ideas about how you're seen, because you said you're a cyclist and you're from South Africa and you're white and you're Jewish and blah, blah, blah. Has that like come up for you often or you know like where people have kind of judged you because oh like you said oh you're a psychist you must wear and you do all that kind of stuff or, or or not that much no i think it's more it's probably more the exception you know like i'd say most of the time i'm received well you know like yeah. my interactions are positive or don't come away from most interactions feeling particularly judged or yeah. thought of negatively yeah yeah that's well, that's important. Yeah, I know what you mean. I have the same thing. Do you? Yeah, no, I, I must admit, I, I, I think I can't work it out because I kind of give off the impression perhaps that I just don't care, that I'm not bothered, even though I am bothered on some extent at all, that I'm very just, here we go, here I am, and I'll tell you anything you want to know. Whether that's why I don't seem to be too bothered by, I don't have those, not bad interactions, but where I come away feeling like, oh, I don't feel good about that. I, I really, I, I just don't have that. And I don't know whether it's, like I said, because I'm just like, you know what, I don't care, this is who I am, like me or not like me, accept me for, this is, this is it, I don't know. But I don't, I can't think of a time where I've had a conversation or been around someone I've come away and gone, okay, that wasn't good. I didn't like that at all. I felt really threatened or judged or whatever. I'm not saying it's never happened. Of course it's happened, but I can't, it's happened them for a long time. And I'm just, I wonder why. That can't be, I think that's not luck. Or maybe well, it is. I, you know, I, I think that um, if you're out there competing, you know, whether it's in a business context yeah. or a sports context, or it might be within a family context, you know, whether you're mm. consciously wanting to or not, if you're if you're out there putting yourself on the line trying to you know either compete or excel definitely in a business context there's competition mm. you know and there's there's jealousy and sometimes the more you stand out the more like conflict is just a natural part of life the more you sort of put yourself out there the more potential conflict you're, you're going to experience like sometimes it's actually a sign I think that you're on the right track because sometimes if people feel threatened by you it's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, or if they feel jealous of you, they, you know, even if it's unconsciously wanting to cut you down and bring you down, that can actually be a sign that you're excelling as well. So 
I think sometimes it's, it's actually good to be... Go back to, so being so, so like me, you're not from here, you came here when you were a lot younger. How have you found that transition from living in a country, having a circle of friends, coming to a new country, having to learn to adapt to that new country and make new friends? When you came here, you were what? 20? 17. 17, I thought it was 20, early 20s, but it's okay. So it's different, but so you, were, you went into school, what year then? Well, I came into first year university. Oh, first year university. Okay. Yeah. And so d- there was, I guess, that was that really tough because everyone had made friends already or not? What the tough thing, firstly, was leaving my home. At the time, growing up in South Africa as a teenager in the 1980s was just a really exciting time. It was a mm. revolutionary time. You know, the the old government was, you know, the old systems were imploding. As, as a young person who was being politicized, you know, in that time, it was just an incredibly exciting thing to be a part of. And that politics, I mean, that sort of revolutionary atmosphere fed into everything, you know, from theater to art, to poetry, you know, music, film as, as a teenager you don't have that that fear of because it was also quite a, a violent place so it, it was a very exciting place to come of age and we were you know with you know me and my group of friends were we were out there going to a lot of african music and you know the events you know they would always sort of have the African anthem that would play before or there'd be sort of political poetry and it was just a you know incredibly exciting thing to be a part of so leaving that at that age was really tough as, as well as you know my close friends that I sort of came of age with and then coming to somewhere like Australia which at that time in 1990 or coming to Melbourne like Melbourne was it was a bit of a sort of I guess charming backwater to be honest like it was, of course, you know, a nice, safe, comfortable place with a lot going for it. But compared to the excitement of, of Africa and sort of, you know, revolutionary South Africa, there wasn't really that much going on. Everything just seemed so neat and orderly and clean and, and organized and sanitized that I sort of missed the chaos of, you know, the, the previous world that I, that I lived in. And it's different when you're a migrant who is who really wants to leave like the sort of the next generation of South Africans that I know when they left they really wanted to leave and they left of their own accord which obviously you're going to be so much more excited about coming to a new country but I was still sort of at that age where it was my parents decision to come at that time would have preferred to stick around and do you look back at it now and go oh god how would my life have... it's a possible question to answer I suppose because you live here and you, you didn't have that life was there a part of you that goes, oh God, how would better, different, better is maybe not the right word, it would have been if you'd stayed in South Africa? Yeah, I mean, I have thought about it a lot and it's just, like you say, it's an impossible thing mm. to answer, you know, how, what path my life would have, I mean, I've been back there a few times and spent time with friends and I could sort of imagine the social context that I would be in, but I've now spent a lot more time here than there, so mm. this is like my dominant experience now is, you know, being here mm. in Australia, where well, South Africa I was there for 17 years. Australia, I've been here for 28 years. Mm. So it's that imagining just becomes dimmer, you know, as time passes. Yes, that's true. And and how did you? I guess you were younger, so it would be easier. 
But, but the acceptance in a new place, did people just embrace you, you're a new guy, hi, and then that was it? Or was it tough because you don't know these people and you didn't know this place and you were, everything was unfamiliar? How was that? Well, I mean, I think that's one of the great things about Melbourne is that people are very open and welcoming of new arrivals, you know, like Australia and Melbourne in particular. It's just, it's a, it's a, a land of immigrants. Like, I think there's some crazy figure, like, I don't know what it is, 30 or 40 or 50% of people in Melbourne are actually born somewhere else. It, I don't know the exact number, but it's very high. Oh, yeah. And I think as long as you just show some interest in the place, then it's a pretty friendly, welcoming place. But there's nothing like the connection of going through school with people. Mm. I, I think like just the you know, coming of age and just the fact that you're basically turning up at the same place every day together and going through some amazing and terrible experiences, you know, creates a bond that probably would, could only be rivaled by, I don't know, being in the army together or mm. something else sort of equally sort of intense. So it's just, I found not as easy to build sort of those same, there's something about those connections that you make um, at school where I feel like it's easier to make these lifelong connections where you just you know someone and no matter how long it's been since you've seen each other there's that instant kind of connection and rapport when you see each other again like I met you imagine would have felt that when you uh, completely agree with what you're saying and and as you're talking I'm kind of going "Mm." there's two things that come up and one is I completely agree with that point in as much as when I go back to London I don't go I was there last year there were some friends that I met up with and the ease of which you can just slot back into their lives it was as if you were never away even though I hadn't been back and seen them for most of them for a long time in some cases 15 20 years yeah. and it was like I'd never never been away so I totally get what you mean in the sense that you know that those historical friends they're they're just I don't know it's that part of your life where you for me I just felt like they know me they get me it's easy it's very comfortable very familiar and and the kind of reason why I'm talking about this is I, one of the things I massively struggle with here is there are points times as much as I've got good friends and like you said I think people in Melbourne are very friendly and they make an effort I don't have that there's no fallback to those people that those I can go to that I've known for a very long time and, and to some extent, even though I'm saying that seemed really important to me, there's another part where I go, you know what, mm, school friends, for me, are, you know, I've outgrown them or they're, they're not where I, where I am now, even though they're in different countries, clearly. There are lots of people, not necessarily school friends, but friends around that time, sort of teenage, university, whatever, where I go, yeah, I miss them not being here at times, to have those conversations, just to pick up the phone and talk to someone and just ease into that. And they know stuff about me and about places that people hear when people here start talking about stuff I feel like okay I know what you're talking about in terms of kind of where it is or whatever but I wasn't part of that so I feel quite yeah kind of left out from that and I yeah. do I struggle with that yeah yeah and it's tough to come to terms with that I think as well where I you know I kind of go and I came here when I came here I was nearly 40 so I was a lot older and that actually for me was really tough to come into a city where people had already established friends 
they were older, they were married, they had kids, and people are less likely to make the effort. People did. I think guys aren't always as great, perhaps, as they could be. It was tough mm. to do that. But yeah. so I was just, that's why, for me, it's interesting to talk to someone who's got the same experience I have. Yeah, well, probably the main thing for me was when I first came to live here, I spoke to a family who had immigrated a few years before, and they said, oh, give it a couple of years, it'll feel like home, you'll completely forget about South Africa, and this will just be like your second home, and this will just become your home, and it'll just feel completely normal. And I was like, oh, okay. So that's interesting. So that's how it works then, okay. And then... um, it didn't happen for the, after a couple of years and it didn't happen. I, I just took that as gospel. Mm. And then I think, I, I don't know why it took me so long, but after about 10 years, I still didn't really feel like I was at home. And, and then I had that realization of, oh, okay, so that's what it's like as an immigrant. Like, it will never truly feel like a number one home. Like, there's nothing like the place where you were born and raised and connected to you're not ever this is what I said to myself what I realized yeah I'm not ever going to have that same feeling nor should I because I am not indigenous you know to this place like I'm an introduced species you know it's kind of like uh, you know you can uh, you, you can do that with a plant or an animal that you can put it in a, in a new environment it can still flourish but it's not its real natural context and so I think once I had that realization of like you're not ever, of course, this is not going to ever feel like you were born here. Mm. Then that was quite freeing because I came to the realization that actually the sadness of leaving my home and the challenges of integrating, well, that feeling is never going to heal completely. Things don't always have to heal. Like not everything Mm. actually has to heal. Uh, You know, you can have a scar, you can have a wound or whatever, but as long as you're aware of it and you take care of it, that's sometimes that's actually just the way life works you know and then things became a lot easier for me when I could, when I actually just accepted it'll never really feel 100% like I'm supposed to be here and and then everything actually <laughs> felt a lot better no, that's interesting because as you're talking I'm going I don't think I've had that realisation myself I, yeah. even now mm. as you're, you're talking I'm going wow that's an interesting way of looking at it because uh, there's still times not that often but there are times where I go oh my god I don't, you know, I'm here, uh, I'm not going to leave here, yes, I'm, I'm separated, but I've got children here, I'm not going to go back to London or live somewhere else, although, I mean, I like the idea of travelling and, and living somewhere else in the future, but this is my home, but I do, it does challenge me to kind of go, oh, you know, I don't, this doesn't really, this is a place where I live, it's not my home. And, and I, as you talk, as I said, I haven't looked at it in that way. We're just accepted, yeah, it's not going to be home. It's, yeah. it's, it is what it is. And, and if you just accept that I'm going to feel this way, then perhaps it's not perhaps it will be easy to come to terms with it. Yeah, and that's not to say that I'm not grateful to be here, that I don't really, you know, like I really like living in Australia. I'm very grateful to be here. It's great to have all the opportunities I'm, mm. I'm very committed to the country and the you know environment and community that I live so it's, it's not you know anything about that I, I think it's just of course the experience is different as an immigrant you know 
compared to someone who was born here and this is you know this is just what you know and then I think the other thing I found from doing quite a bit of traveling was when I especially when I was traveling through Southeast Asia I had this realization of well if I don't truly have a home then everywhere is my home you know then I can feel at home in, in some way wherever I go and, and like in, in some ways it's like as the world progresses like we're going beyond I would love to we're probably not as a society but to move beyond nationalism tribalism you know to move more towards like a global society like to me that's that's healthy we are products of that you know we are products of like mm. of, of this you know global culture and to me that you know this, you know nationalism that's where most wars come from yes. nationalism and, and tribalism so it's nice to be a bit more expansive and not just sort of fixate on you know, this country or that country but the, the thing with Australia is that because uh, on the surface it's actually very similar to South Africa and probably very similar to England as well but when you actually go into it it's a very very unique culture especially like I say the way going back to this men's group the way men interact in Australia is a very very specific thing it is you know there's a sort of there's like a blokiness even sort of like a lot of the women have that like, because if you don't, then you're just going to be cast aside. So it's quite a, it's actually, it's quite a tough culture. It is. I, I must admit, that's something that I didn't, I never even, and, and I wouldn't have. I had no preconceived idea about that at all. And, and that was a real shock to me. You know, I've talked to Aussie men about it, joked about being like, going back to you talking about being a men's group. And I can just see, you know, these educated people looking at me like, what the hell are you... You know what I mean? They don't... I'm not saying everyone does that. But there are some people like, they're looking at me. And I don't know what they're... I can almost see it in their eyes like, really? I don't understand. Why do you want to be in a room sharing, being vulnerable and talking about stuff where you're... You know what I mean? Like, oh, what, I don't understand that. And it's... But as you say, it, that's the culture here. Australian men are very blokey. And even, like you say, women... That's just the, that's just the way it is. You know, oh, yeah, they're a brutal bloke. You know, it's, that's just the culture. And it's funny because you, you know you go to New Zealand, which on the surface is very similar to Australia, but actually I find the culture there very different. You know, like it reminds me more of South Africa, where it's not that just complete like hardcore, blokey, um, you know, sort of culture. You know, there's good things you know about that as well, but from a, a man's point of view, it's it's not always that great. You know, like because the the main you know coming of age well I don't know in my 20s or going out to bars or clubs or that sort of thing the only t you know you would see men express affection if they'd have like 20 whiskeys or you know three E's and then they sort of put their hand around some, <laughs> their mate and go oh, I love this bloke <laughs> yes yes <laughs> Give them a kiss on the on the head, or but they'd have to be like completely off their heads yes. to like express any kind of I don't know what you know like affection. You know? Yes, and even funny, even you're saying I'm going well. That's quite like in England, but it isn't like that at all. I think it takes it takes often more something like alcohol or something that that will enhance how you're feeling and and make you more likely to do that. But I know there were people that would do that. They didn't have to be completely drunk or off their heads to, to, to show affection. And it's so weird that you kind of just... For someone who who loves that and thinks that's really important, I, I struggle with, God, why wouldn't everybody want to... I don't know, everyone's not like me, but why wouldn't everyone want to feel that? Because 
to be able to feel and express and share it's amazing it changes your whole life yeah well the main way that also that you do it here is through banter and that you know it's like if, if you like someone then you put them down and by doing that you're sort of yes. demonstrating like in a very a subtle way some form of affection <laughs> which is so ridiculous it doesn't mean even though I totally get what you mean because that is what exactly what happened but it's just like really that's, that's just I know where I stand then my experience of the positive side of that with the friends I grew up with was that idea of if you go a bit off track or if you sort of get a bit too arrogant or if you're sort of fooling yourself then your friend will kind of cut yes. you down in a very affectionate way to bring you back you know down to earth so yeah it's it's interesting all that and, and it's not necessarily that you know like there's, there's a lot of good stuff that comes in, in banter as well like if it's done in you know in a good way in a playful way it, does, it really does bring people closer. Yes, it does break down boundaries and, and you can have a good laugh and that sort of thing. It's often done in this very blokey context of like like a, a, a pissing contest, you know, something like that. <laughs> or, or people being like deliberately offensive and provocative, you know, whether it's like, a, you know, anti-women or something like that. Like being almost sort of like deliberately offensive or outrageous to to test you to see mm. like are you a real man or you know yes or are you not <laughs> that is so true i remember when i think i was only about that's my dog if anyone's <laughs> she's trying to initiate a dance oh don't throw the ball first she'll just keep bringing it back i think i was about 19 and i went on this camping holiday up the coast and i was somewhere near Brisbane camping we were hanging out with these surfers and we were the sun was going down and they were drinking beer and having a little bit of laugh and banter and that sort of thing and, and I was kind of half sort of having a bit of a laugh with you know at this guy with him kind of, you know and it was all very good natured and then at some point there was just a pause and he looked at me and he goes you calling me a cunt <laughs> And, okay, so what happened after that? Did you did you kind of go, oh, oh my God, what do I do now? Or you were like, mm, just yeah, laughed, you just, laughed it off yeah, and went, no, 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 no. Yeah, suddenly the whole sort of context changed. I thought changed, it changed the whole mood. You know? Yeah, and that's kind of like the knife edge that sometimes like, you know, the language of manhood works, you know, in, in Australia where often, you know, these, these things just, you go too far or... Um, yes. Because we, you know, all oh. these blokes are also very vulnerable and insensitive mm. beneath all that and so that's why there's all these fights and you know people say you know like suddenly like challenge you because you've said something that's actually hurt them it's reminded yes. them of something bad or that they felt insulted or it's reminded them of how their brother used to beat them up or something to do with their dad or some experience of shame or something like that you know that's i think a lot of the problem with manhood in a very conventional blokey sort of context is that the channels of communication just get blocked a lot you know yes so if that if that's like your language if that's your way of interacting then at some point someone's going to get offended and then they'll probably think that if they show they're offended then you have won so they'll act like everything's fine yes. and there's all these you know misunderstandings that happen where there'll be plenty of times where 
you won't even know that you've you know, offended someone because there's no language, there's no actual vocabulary because they've never had permission yes. to actually um, say, hey, when you did that, it made me feel like when you did that, this is how I felt. Yes, yes. Uh, like it's actually not, not such a big deal. No, I think it is, but it's so, and as you're saying, I'm going, my God, that's so unevolved that you, someone isn't able just to go, oh, you know what, exactly what you just said. God, I'm thinking back to, to London and my life there and, and when that happened. And people just did exactly what they would say that. You know, if you did something to offend somebody or you said something that was wrong, they'd say, look, you know what, I'm not, that's, you know, what you said upset me or that was, people just did that. I'm not saying everybody did that, but there was, a, there was, there was some of that. Whereas here, it's, you know, it's completely different. Yeah, it's interesting, like, I don't know if you've seen uh, what's been happening with this politician, David Lionholm. No. Who has been saying these, like, really outrageous things about this Greens uh, senator. It's just got amped up and amped up, and, and he keeps on going into the media and kind of <laughs> saying more and more insulting things, and, like, people giving him the opportunity to back down, and he just, you know, he won't. And, and that's something that's often, I think, lacking in our society is just for someone to just think about for a second and go, well, I, I can see that what I did actually hurt mm. you. And, and then like the worst thing that people say is they'll go, if I've done something to offend you, then I apologize, you know, which is kind of this total like disassociation. Yes, yes, with, absolutely. With thing. Like, it's like, uh, this has nothing to do with me, but you know, if you've taken offense, then I apologize. Like as opposed to, wow, like I didn't even actually didn't mean to do it on purpose. Now that I think about it, you know, what I said, like, I can see how that has, you know, offended you or hurt you. And I'm sorry, because I actually don't, I don't want to hurt you. Like, that's, that, that's like, actually the opposite of, it's not so difficult. It's not so complicated. No, but it sounds like that's just not owning, taking responsibility for what you're saying. That's like, I'm just, as you say, distancing yourself. It's sort of over there. It's not, you know, that's just completely that, which is completely wrong. Yeah, I mean, this is not stuff that they teach in school. There's a difference between being a sensitive new age guy and being someone who actually owns how they feel and is prepared to stand mm. up and put themselves on the line for, you know, who they are and, and you know, what their experience is. So, yeah, there's like we, we live in a very violent society. You know, and it's not just physical violence. It's like, you know, emotional violence. It's like, you know, it's the threat of violence mm. or the threat of violence, particularly between men that, you know, might happen if someone sort of looks at you the wrong way or something like that. And this gets passed on through the generations. And, you know, you, from my travels in Southeast Asia, like often there's not that same sense of threat in, in that yeah. compared to like the, I think it's the same in England like England also it, it's a very um, that Anglo-Saxon or America it's more you know uh, gun violence that kind of thing yeah yeah, exactly I agree yes often in like you know white western societies there's that that threat and that feeling of like I need to you know assert myself show that I'm not a pushover or something like that but yeah there's I, I think so such an opportunity for us to start to get beyond that stuff yeah no i could i do and as you're, as you're talking again i kind of go it's not slightly off but the, the, you know there is so much of people who stereotype as we were saying before and people who conform i think there is so much in this world now where lots of uh, lots of people including myself conform to what people what i think people 
I, even though I tell myself I've, I'm not like that, and you were saying before about being, you know, different and out there, and you know, where, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure there are even some decisions I make or take which are subconscious, but I'm still conforming on some level to what I think is people are expecting me to do, or and I don't know whether you, I'm sure you do, like I come across that a lot, where you see other people do it, and you're like, why, why are you doing that? Well, something that I've noticed a lot is like through Facebook, the image that people project of what their life is like sometimes i see these pictures of where i can see like a gathering of people but and i see them they're in a place and they've taken a photo of themselves and it's going on facebook and i see their mouth in the shape of a smile but their eyes aren't smiling you know and it's this very deliberate hey look at me i'm here where i'm supposed to be this is like a a mark of status or whatever but you, I can just see in their eyes that the, the, maybe the caption underneath doesn't match the, there's no smile in the eyes sort of thing that, that you know, ticking a box. And, and it, it's, it breaks my heart when I see that with children. Like when, when, when I see adults like that, it really doesn't matter. When I see people taking these photos of their kids and putting mm-hmm. them on Facebook in these particular locations where it's like, hey, look how well my life is going. And I can just see the kids got like these deep lines under their eyes or their eyes look dead, you know, then it just, that's when it breaks my heart because I can see that being passed on to the kids and the, t- the kids are sort of too young or it might be a situation where I've had like this offline experience with a friend where I can see what's really going on in their life and how they're struggling and that's fine, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. That's They're just going through what everyone else is going through and then an hour later I'll see a photo on Facebook of this idealized experience of how they want to project their life is really going to everyone else and sometimes when I get on Facebook and I look at these photos then I start going, how come my life's not as good as all the stuff that I'm seeing there? And, and then I have to remind myself that it's often an illusion, you know. Yeah, it is, it is. As I said to somebody once, I think this is so true, is you know what, what mask am I wearing today? Mm. You know, and and everybody does it. I'd like to think I don't do that often because I just, if I'm feeling crap, I'll tell you I'm feeling crap. But pretty much everybody, how are you? Yeah, good. Really? You I mean, you could always be good, but I think that's just a, you know, a lot of people just say that when it rolls off the tongue rather than saying, no, I'm shit. When was the last time you heard someone say, I'm shit? I bet not very often. No, well, I guess that's got to be in the context of if, if you're going to say that, then you, it needs to be in a situation where... You said before, in context, I guess. Yeah, where maybe you're with a good friend and they sort of... Yes. It's a genuine ask about how you, know, how you really are. Yes, but I think there's almost like an expectation of, like you just said, which I think is very true of, going back to this whole thing about conforming, is that people just use Facebook and social media as a way of presenting my perfect life when that's not the case. Because if I'm struggling and you're struggling and we're all struggling on whatever levels because it's tough to live, we're not unique. Yeah. Everyone, and I talk to enough people to know that's what we're all experiencing. So I'm not saying you can't have happy moments and you should do have, where you, but generally often that you can see it can't always be. Hey, look at my life. This is, as you say, yeah. is in the eyes as well. I agree with that. Completely. There's that fear of missing out. Like I remember yes. a, a few years ago, I went on holiday to Sydney and we stayed in Manly and we had this amazing house, which was like right 
on the water in yeah. like in the harbor and i remember t i took this beautiful photo and the sun was setting and it was like from the garden looking out across the harbor and then you know how in facebook it pops up like you know two years ago and uh, ah, yes my and, and it was like i had i had uh, fomo like of myself like that image <laughs> that i posted now is coming back to haunt me because i was like oh look where my life is now compared to how I was feeling on that day. And I'm like, was actually jealous of myself for this, you know, idealized image that I'd put out there. So, yes. Yeah. But I, I try to set my own goals and really focus on, on that stuff. And as, as much as possible, compare my progress to where I was before and where I want to go to. And it's, I find it impossible not to compare how I'm going to what's going on around me. But mm. the more that I am, um, the more that I choose the right goals and I like really clearly articulate them. And the more I think, where was I before? Where am I going? Let me remind myself, you know, what's my mission here? Like, what am I trying to achieve? The less I get caught up in all that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, that's a good way of doing it. Cause I, I'd, I'd like to think I'd try to set myself set goals as well, but it's very easy to get distracted by what's around me even though I tell myself and I do largely not get bothered by what other people do what everyone else does is entirely up to them I don't feel threatened by that but I'm sure on some level like, there is a part of me that does yeah. and I'd be kidding myself if, that, if I said that wasn't true because it, it is but it is tough and, and I look around and, it, and I, it sort of breaks my heart to a certain extent where I can see like you said you were talking about people on Facebook and you can see it in their eyes and particularly with children as well that the smile does not reflect how they feel inside but you, you look around and go, God, how, what people feel like they have to present themselves. And they aren't like me who just don't care, not bother about where they live, what car they drive, what they do, what they don't do. That they do all, all the complete opposite of that. And they, you know, buy this, go there, do this, whatever, because they feel like they have to be seen to be just like everybody else when actually they, they can't, or they can't afford to do that. And, but then... And the pressure you put yourself under is, is huge. And I just think that's, I don't know what world do I live in where that's, I don't know, maybe yeah. it's just this little tiny pocket of my middle class life in, yeah. in, in you know, yeah. a very nice city. But yeah, I mean, if it's like, if it's another adult, like that's, I just, that's the choice that they make. Yeah. Like what it's, where it hits home for me is when I, I just think about my kids and the experience that they're having now and the experience that they're going to have. Yeah. And I think all that sort of thing is just becoming more and more amplified, you know, like say with something like Instagram, where it's this distilled, idealized image. Like it's not, Facebook is like, you know, a post and a story yeah. and an image. And Instagram, it's just, it's just that image. It's just, you either measure up to it or you don't sort of thing. So yeah, I think about my kids and, and the world that they're going into. And yeah, with all that other stuff of like signaling status and, and that kind of thing. I think we're all to a greater or lesser extent. It's impossible not to buy into it. And on some levels, I buy into it as well. I think it's, it's hard not to, but it's up to each person to, I suppose you've got to decide how much buying into that philosophy is enhancing your life. <laughs> and if it's, if it's really not working for you, then it's better to replace that with another philosophy. You know, otherwise you're just actually punishing yourself. No, I agree. And it's even to the point where I, I try and tell myself not to. And I don't. I largely do this with going back to Facebook, 
well, it's on my phone. I've got an icon like everybody else does. And, and I thought I could remove it, take it off my phone. And, but I, it's still on there. I don't often look at it, but I do go to it. I'm still telling myself that I'm not trapped by it, that I need to go onto Facebook all the time. And I, I never, ever post anything on Facebook. But I still look. Mm. And there's still parts of me that are interested in, oh, this one's doing that, this one's doing that. So I'm caught up in that to some extent. And if it wasn't important to me at all, I would remove it from my phone, which I don't yeah. do. And I think it's also natural, like, you know, we live in a city and there's experiences available to us and most of them cost money, you know, whether it's about the car you drive or the holiday you go on or whatever. And, you know, a lot of these, like, can be, you know, legitimate pursuits, you know, like there's a lot of value in, in having holidays. So it, it, might, it might partly be someone might use it in, in a negative way to sort of like signal to everyone in a competitive way about what a great life they're mm. having in inverted commas. But also it's, um, it's also a really healthy thing to do to go have a holiday. Or if you're into cars, it's nice to have a, a nice car. Or if you're into restaurants, it's, it's nice to go and dine at, at you know, whatever your thing is. You know, the, these aren't just things to dismiss. It's more, uh, if you get caught up in this competitive thing of turning up at the right restaurant because that's where you should be seen. And, you know, what, uh, what do they say? You're, you know, sort of spending money to impress people that, you know, you don't like or, you know, yeah. don't, often with money you don't even have to start off with. So then you're sort of, you know, heading down a dangerous path. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you why I think it's complex because sometimes, you know, people might go, my kids are the number one thing. So I'm not really going to invest in myself that much because it's all about the kids and you think you're doing the right thing, but you're not always doing that because like it's, it's, everything's connected. So like if kids have an example of a father who is, has a world outside of the family, has interests, has, has other pursuits, you know, is part of a community, has, uh, you know, challenges, all this sort of stuff, then it's actually good for the kids as well. Or if you have a, you know, parents who also invest in their local community, who are interested in the environment, who are interested in politics or, you know, like they have civic duties mm. or they, like it's, everything's all linked together. So it, it's partly placing them as a priority, but it's also putting yourself as a priority because you're, the number one the way the kids learn from you is by the example that you set, mm. the way you talk, the way you live, the way you interact. You know with people so you, you know I, I see some people who have given up on themselves because they just well it's all about the kids now you know I've had my go and that's not necessarily great for them either no I think I agree with you completely and you have to be happy because if you're not then that's going to your children there's their kids are smart they can pick up on that and then it's well why you're not happy and, and there's there are issues around that and I think, you, again, what you said is spot on. You're a role model and you've got to set an example. And, well, it's great to be there for your kids, like I said to you, I am. But if you don't have any other, if you're not looking after yourself, mm. then that's, that's not good at all. Yeah, yeah. It, look, it's, it's a hard one with the, the kids because often, I mean, my experience as a parent, like I feel like I'm quite flawed, you know, like I try to do the right thing but often you know I don't or I don't always set the right example or I'm not always as patient as I should be or I could be a better listener or whatever so the first thing is just to accept that imperfection you know to actually be aware of 
if I can maybe succeed slightly more than I fail as a parent, then maybe that's actually you know, doing pretty well. That's good. So it's, 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 a, it's a rocky road, you know. Yeah, I think that this is the age you know, where my kids are growing up and, and I need to try to do what I can for them and, and be there for them, really listen to them, be patient, educate them, lead by example, all that sort of stuff. And do you find it, because you're talking as well, I kind of go, oh, you know what, I've got three kids and I always try to pick out something in each of them which I can connect with and 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 yet I'm not going to name any of them or, or, or aspect, but I, there are, as you, and again, it's kind of an obvious thing to say that, you know, you, you it's about connection and you if you have a connection with someone, whether they happen to be a sibling, a parent, a child, then that makes a difference. There is, a, and there's almost like this, Un, kind of, they'll always be your children. You're always going to love them. That's absolutely right, and that's how it should be. But in terms of the true connection, do you, do you find that with your kids, where there's one of them where you connect more with than the other, or where you feel like, oh, you know, I don't, I'm, I love them because they're my children, but you know what, you're into that, or and I'm into that, or. Or you, you can connect with them equally because they're into different things and, and you connect with them on those different levels. Well, I mean, there's a four-year age difference between my mm. kids, so we connect in different ways. The thing I find is that because they're growing up, I have to keep on redefining the relationship. So mm. the way we might have connected six months ago might be very different, you know, like, you know, my daughter is now a teenager and she's growing and changing and evolving. Her needs are changing you know maybe ways that we would have interacted a year or two ago that's why i think kids you know they, they get to that point of like oh, dads you know like either you know you're embarrassing me or or like you sort of become this odd <laughs> sort of figure in the family because it's hard to keep up sometimes because you blink and suddenly they're they're older and you have to interact with them differently you, you yeah. I can't just be an authority figure, you know, like that's that's not going to work. I can't just be a breadwinner. I can't just be a playful dad or, you know, make yes. dad jokes. Like it's really complex to have a relationship, at least with adults. You know, we don't really change that much. There's that stability to the relationship, but I yes. have to keep on re- redefining the relationship with the kids because that's probably the number one thing for me is that I just, I want our relationship to continue and to evolve you know and for us to feel connected and for my kids to want to come to me and share themselves you know yeah and is is there anything that like when you were a a kid and your relationship with your parents where you've done the same or the complete opposite from what your parents did so like i was saying before where my parents went around therefore i do everything for my kids do you does there stuff like that happened to you when you grew up and you were like, mm, I didn't like that at all, so I'm going to do this with my children. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that when I was growing up, it was probably similar with you where it was a very different culture where, like, I was really raised by my mum and my dad wasn't around as much. And it was partly because in those days, people got married and had kids a lot earlier. So I don't know how old... My dad was, would have been in like, you know, he was, he was probably only about 25 or something like that. Mum was similar, yeah. And so if I remember, you know, when I was 25, that was the age where I just wanted to be out there going out, you know, partying, you know, that sort of thing. 
Um, so it's very, very different. But also in that culture, there was just that expectation of, well, more traditional roles of the father being the, yeah. you know, out there and working, that kind of thing. But I have been conscious of you know, wanting to spend more time you know, with my kids and, and my son in particular, you know, as a, you know, a father and, and boy, mm. for him to have that, experience, that sort of like male experience. So, yeah, and, and maybe that's just the way things are done now. You know, there's, there's just that expectation that, you know, we are just, you know, a lot more involved. So is it something that I've consciously done or is it just that's the world that I'm in now as a father? Yes, and then, then maybe that ties into the whole thing about, I'm not saying you feel like you have to conform because that's what's expected of you, although I think that's true to a certain extent. But I think there are some people who completely... who who choose not to take that path and step out and say, well, this is who I am and I'm, I'm the breadwinner still and I'm, I don't, you know, my wife looks after the children and I don't, I'm just, I don't need to yeah. be in their lives. Yeah. So we, yeah, we go on holidays and stuff like that, but I'm not around. Although, you're absolutely right, I think the vast majority of dads that I know are very involved and do lots of things, sport or activities or whatever it is, yeah. they're there, where in the past that was yeah. never the case. Dad wasn't yeah. dropping off and picking up and yeah. doing X, Y, or yeah. going to, or whatever yeah. it was. It didn't do that. Yeah. That has completely yeah. changed. Yes, yeah. What I really do aspire to do is have genuine interactions with my kids where I really want them to feel listened to and respected and heard mm. and for not for them to feel like I'm just inflicting my mm. views and ideas on them and whether I'm successful at that, only you know they can answer. But I think that's something that I've tried to give my kids, which was different to when I was a kid, is just for them to feel that yeah. confidence to speak up and for them to be heard and to feel that equality as one human to another interacting. Like, of course, there's all these other layers of I'm the parent, but in that moment when they are expressing themselves, for them to feel really respected and, and, and heard and on, on a level... Like, I want to say equality. I don't mean equality in terms of, like, I'm still the, I suppose, the authority figure in, in a way, but just on a purely human level, you know, when we are connecting, it's just because they're a child and, and I'm an adult, they, they are important and, and valid and, and their ideas are important and fascinating. You know, that's really what I want them to feel. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with you as well. I talk to them as if they're on the same level as me at times because I want to have that kind of just conversation as if they were a peer. Yes, there is that. Clearly, they get that I'm their dad and I have that authority figure. Yeah. But there are lots of times where I just want to talk to them and just ask them. They don't always give me the answer I, uh, that I'm hoping for or I want or they're not even present, not mm. even listening to me. But there are sometimes when that does, there are, there are moments where I have that wow, you know what, we're having a conversation, this is great, you're listening to me, I'm hearing you, I've learned something, you've learned something, and I think that's, those moments are huge, and I, yeah, I think that's really powerful. What a great conversation. Yes. <laughs> the podcast is called More Real. What do you wish in your life was more real than it is now? Mm, that's a really good question. Well, probably most things, um, <laughs> but I'm supposed to narrow it down. Yeah, I mean, I'm um, making pick a few things. Doesn't I don't, I'm saying one thing, but it, well, if you had to, friends or acquaintances or my family. 
my experience of this country mm. and the culture here, uh, like I, I would like that to deepen. Mm. Yeah, I think the, the, those are probably the two main things. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Well, I've just enjoyed this having a chat with you. It's nice to have um, the excuse of the podcast just to get together and have this conversation. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to More Real. I truly hope you've enjoyed the experience and that you will continue to be here to explore real life with me. If you have, please tell anyone you know about More Real. I love creating a space for real conversations. So if you know anyone who would want to be on this podcast, please email me at morereal1, one is spelt O-N-E, at gmail.com. Once again, morereal1 at gmail.com. I'm very grateful as always for your support.